Uh, we start a new series today. It's called The Waiting. Uh, we got that from St. Thomas of Petty. Uh, the waiting is the hardest part. Anybody familiar with rock and roll? Anyway, uh, four people got that. Okay. Uh, Tom Petty. It doesn't matter. Anyway, um, uh, but Advent is this season uh, that, that uh, connotes a couple things. Advent is from the Latin word adventus. It's kind of a, a mirror of the Greek word parousia. It means the coming or the, the arrival. Uh, and so certainly as we go through this season, we're doing what we've always done at this time of year. We're looking back at the first coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. But in subsequent weeks, we're going to spend some time looking forward to the second coming of Christ. We live in this blessed in-between. The in be- <laughs> we're in the in-between of the arrivals. And we should be living life accordingly. But uh, uh, today I want to talk to you about uh, this first part of Advent as we're uh, going through it together today. Um, and I want to talk about it in terms of this idea of us waiting. Christmas is a waiting game. Is, would everybody agree with me on that? It's a waiting game. Um, when I was a kid, I would circle the date. Who's, who, who remembers that? And I'll be honest, I wasn't doing it because of, of Jesus. And certainly I, I grew up in a Christian home and, and I knew the story and the reason of this, for the season, all that stuff. But I was doing it for the presents. Come on, seriously. It was payday, right? I mean, I would, you know, fold down all this, this you got to be a certain age, but I would fold down the corners of the Sears catalog of the, you know, the things that I wanted. And, and then I would hope that, you know, uh, a giver of things would bring and, and give it to me. And, and, and so Christmas for me was, I, I didn't care about having a day off, big whoop. I didn't care about meals or family. I mean, they were there, whatever. I just, I just wanted my gifts. And there was like, you know, is it, who grew up in the house where if you like shook a gift or, or peeked at a gift or found your gift before, it went like in timeout, like forever. Has anybody grown up in that house? It was a very nasty Christmas environment in my, in my world. And, and, but, but it was just so, ah, oh, nine-year-old, nine-year-old Mark just wanted to open. Now, it's a different waiting game for me now. And I think that happens for us as adults as we get older. Um, Christmas changes for us. It's, it's not about receiving as much as giving. Um, and so, but some of us maintain that childlike attitude towards Christmas. We can't wait. You know, like, how many of you are already decorated? Who's decorated out here? Anybody got their house decorated? Inside and out, anybody? Overachievers? Way to go. Yeah, proud of you. Uh, uh, There's certainly, uh, you know, a portion of the populace where uh, they can't wait for Christmas, and so as soon as it's, you know, deemed appropriate, which is earlier and earlier every year, you know, they're they're starting to get the stuff out and starting to celebrate, sing the songs, right? I'm already getting Christmas cards. I mean, like it's November, I'm getting Christmas cards. I'm like, seriously, people, come on. Because I'm from the other camp. Who doesn't have a stitch up? Anybody got nothing up? Who hasn't even thought about shopping and all those things? Yeah, we're, we're family, you and me, right? My waiting game is like, how long can I wait before I have to take that stuff down out of the attic? That's my waiting game. Call me Scrooge, I don't care. I've kind of lost the luster on the whole decorate everything. In fact, I, I told the service before, if I could figure out a way to convince my family that a tree on the TV is fine and that's it, I would just have like some feed to a certain input of my, you know, television that at any time they, you know, oh, it doesn't feel like Christmas around here. I can just hit a button and the tree appears, right? And there's a soundtrack that goes with it and we get a three minute download and then we go right back to football. Who's with me on that? Anybody? We don't need wreaths and, because here's the deal. The second part of the Christmas waiting game is how long am I going to wait to put this stuff back, Right? Because all the stuff that comes down has to be shoved back up through the hole that's too small for the trees. Everybody know what I'm talking about? You keep your stuff in your attic? 
I know. I, I love Christmas. Don't get me wrong. There's this guy in my neighborhood, though. He's figured it out. Puts the decorations up, never takes them down. You got that, neighbor? <laughs> they just sit there all, you know, I, I think there's a designated switch inside this guy's house. And on like the night of Christmas, or on the night of Thanksgiving, he just goes, blam, Christmas, done, boom. <laughs> it's been kind of hiding in the corners, sticking out the edges of my shingles. But here it is, Clark Griswold, you know, bam, hallelujah, there it is. I don't know if he's done that because he's smart and efficient, or maybe he's just lazy, can't be bothered to take it down. But let me shift gears first, uh, just a little bit here. I, I, I find what he's done appropriate. And here's why. The church, for the most part, only talks about Christmas in the month of December. It's creeping into November. But that's pretty much what we reserve the story of the birth of Christ for, this time in the year where we celebrate him. But I would submit to you that my neighbor who leaves his lights up, he's figured it out. It's Christmas every day. Like we should celebrate the birth of our Savior, the presence of his light in our lives, of, of his coming to our earth. Um, it, it is, if not the greatest day, it's the beginning of the greatest of days. Uh, his, his death and resurrection perhaps uh, rivaling his birth. But without his birth, there's no death and resurrection, right? It's big. You know, we've, uh, we've kind of cornered uh, the, the celebration for December 25th, which if you kind of research that, I did this week, if you research December 25th, it's kind of spurious, you know, how we got there. It's kind of like, oh. Like if you read, you know, the New Testament, there's no mention of a celebration of the birth of Christ in the New Testament. In fact, if you read your New Testaments, the, the, the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ might lead you to believe that he wasn't born in December at all. Like the shepherds watching their flocks by night, that's like a springtime, summertime activity in Israel. It gets cold over there. And so in December, when it gets cold, they often corral their sheep. They're not out, you know, there's no grass for the sheep to eat. They're eating hay in the barns, right? Things that they've collected. And so some scholars have even said, you know, there's your proof right there. It's probably going a little bit too far, but certainly something to think about. In the first couple hundred years of uh, church writings by our patriarchs, no mention of a celebration of Christmas. In fact, it's not really until uh, mid-200s that we see Christmas even mentioned, and it's tied to another church tradition, another church calendar uh, a date called Epiphany. Has anybody ever heard of Epiphany? The Eastern Orthodox churches uh, still celebrate Epiphany. If you go up to Tarpon Springs, they make a big fuss about that. They throw a cross in a pond and, or wherever it is, and Kids go diving for it, and they've got all kinds of beliefs that are tied to that. But um, the Epiphany is this celebration of the arrival of the Magi uh, to a, a young Jesus. Uh, he's not just born. In fact, if you have a nativity scene, let me ruin it for you. Um, uh, the wise men shouldn't be there. In fact, if you have a nativity scene up today, I'm going to just encourage you to do this. Go home. Leave Mary and Joseph and the baby, the, the, the cattle are lowing, they can stay, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the shepherds and all that stuff. But take the three wise guys and just walk down the hallway, right, or go out in the garage, I don't care where you go, go across the street to your neighbors and just kind of leave them there because symbolically and probably even, you know, roughly, that's the distance that they were from Christ at his birth. They weren't there yet. Are you with me? But we still kind of lump, at least we did it this time in the church's history, we lump Christmas, the celebration of the birth of Christ with the arrival of the Magi, which might be how we got our nativities in the first place. I didn't research that part, but that would make sense, right? We don't really even see Christmas mentioned as Christmas until mid-300s when the uh, Roman 
empire has adopted Christianity as their faith and is one of their means to actually uh, you know, bring Christ into the story of the empire. Uh, they, they take his birth, which hasn't been separated until, uh, up until this point other than on Epiphany, and they make it its own day in December. Most scholars believe to basically offset some of the traditional festivals that have been used to worship false gods, like uh, the Roman god of, uh, of, of, uh, of agriculture was a god named Saturn. Makes a great car. But uh, um, Saturn had his own festival in December. Uh, another Persian god called Mithra, sounds like someone Godzilla would fight, but Mithra uh, was the god of light. And so Mithra and Saturn had festivals. Well, why don't we put the celebration of Jesus in December and it'll kind of take the, the, the shine away from those as we're trying to steer people towards Christianity. I don't know, I mean, it's just a theory. Uh, but it isn't until, you know, uh, much later that it becomes uh, a European custom to celebrate Christmas. Advent comes after that in some forms. And, um, but even in, in our own history, like uh, uh, around the revolution, uh, Christmas was seen as a European or an English tradition. And so uh, us Americans, us new, new, newly minted Americans stopped celebrating Christmas for a while because we associated with those that we were trying to separate ourselves from, right? Didn't become an official holiday in the United States until 1870. You got Santa coming in 1945. That's pretty much where I stopped reading. But uh, we uh, have chosen this one day, December 25th, as our day to remember Christ. But I said all of that to basically say this. I, I think we should be celebrating the birth of Christ with every day that we wake up. It's a game changer. I think like Travis said, as he was talking to you earlier as we lit the candles, it's certainly appropriate that in this hemisphere... Um, the shortest days of our calendar year land right around December 25th. Um, and so the, the light of Christ coming to the world is certainly symbolic on our darkest of days. But as I uh, talk to you this morning, uh, I want to talk to you about this birth. This, uh, as one scholar called it, the Christian D-Day. Are you familiar with World War II? World War II was this long conflict, depending on which dates you look at, you know, some six or seven years. America got in later, right, Pearl Harbor, uh, right around this time of year. But uh, um, when we got involved, uh, you know, fighting against Japan and the Axis uh, enemies, um, we, we collaborated with uh, allied troops in, in Britain, and, and we launched this thing called, um, you know, uh, D-Day. We, we, it's become it's not other things, but Operation Overlord, but we, we call it D-Day. And D-Day did not end the war. Does everybody get that? Who, who went to school? Anybody remember that? It wasn't the last fight of the war, but it was the beginning, most scholars will tell you, the beginning of the end of that conflict. It's where the, the tide shifted. And so uh, the coming of Christ does not end everything. We're still persisting in a world that is broken by sin. Testify, anybody, right? Um, and, and, and we certainly are looking forward to his second coming, his return, and, and, and that will be the end. But Christmas is our D-Day because it marks the beginning of the end of what we exist in now, this darkness. So as we go on, um, let me preach the things that I have for you today. And uh, one more one more item about Christmas. Anybody send Christmas cards? Anybody still do that? Electronically, it's totally free. You can totally do that. Anyway, but, uh, but if you're still, you know, writing the cards out, I think it's awesome. Thank you for those who send us yours. Um, we used to send Christmas cards uh, as a family, and, and I remember one time we had a box of cards that said, reason for the season. Who's ever heard that one around this? I've used it a couple times, even as I've been preaching to you. Today, I want to talk to you about the reason behind the reason for the season, right? 
Because certainly, uh, in this commercialized era that we live in, the reason for the season can get lost. Jesus is the reason there's Christ in Christmas and all those other things that we throw around, you know, as people say happy holidays to us and all that stuff. Um, but um, I want us to talk today about the reason behind the reason, behind Jesus coming in the first place. The reason Jesus came is that uh, there's a huge problem amongst us humans. Um, if we were on a space journey, um, perhaps we would have uh, phoned the tower by now and said, humans, we have a problem. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. It hasn't been funny in any of the services yet. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> because uh, uh, as, as we kind of start our look at Scripture today, we're going to start at the very beginning in the first couple of pages as we talk about humans having this problem. They're going to switch that slide up there. It'll show up on your screen. Humans have a, we have a problem. There, there it is. And uh, um, uh, it wasn't always this way. If you read the first couple pages of our book, things are cool, like perfect. Like if you've ever thought you've had a perfect day, I'm, I'm going to inform you, you haven't. There hasn't been a perfect day ever. In, in, in the existence that we now have, no perfect days. Everybody, well, you don't have to agree. It's true. They're broken. They may seem perfect compared to other days, but they're not perfect days. The perfect days that the world uh, experienced all came two pages into your book, and then they stopped. They were so perfect that um, the, the man and the woman, the first humans were described this way in Genesis chapter two. They were said, uh, it was said of them, that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now there's lots of implications for that in marriage and I've preached those messages and I will again, but I just wanna talk about this statement as a statement for humankind in general. What it says about humanity, the man and the woman, these first two who were created by God. It says that they were naked and they were not ashamed. In other words, they had nothing to hide and nothing to regret. In fact, regret had not even been uh, invented yet. No such thing. They're just walking around uh, in perfection. Kind of like that three-year-old. When you go over to his house, his parents kind of lose him while they're changing the diaper or something like that, and he comes running out, and he's like, <laughs> right? Because he just has no... Inhibitions, he has no sense of clothing or non-clothing. He's just kind of like, I'm free! In his innocence, he just runs around. That changes, right? We get to a point where we realize we've got some stuff to hide. We've got some things to regret. And, and, and it all starts because this perfection that we were created for ends. In Genesis chapter 3, it tells us that... Uh, now, the first man and the first woman, the, the woman is the character who chooses first. But the man should have been there, fellas. Don't take a walk on this. We should have been there to stop what was going on, and we abdicated our leadership and vice regency of creation in, in not stopping what was going on. But um, whatever the workings of that are, uh, both were complicit in defying the one rule that God had given Humanity at the time, don't eat this tree. Don't eat this fruit from this tree. And they did. And they, they, they did it because they wanted to be on par with God, like God, above God. They wanted to be autonomous. They didn't want to be beholden to him. Whatever the reasons are, they're all the reasons that we sin, by the way, right? But it starts with them. And what was the immediate repercussion of that choice? Anybody remember? We've got to cover this up. I have severe regret. I feel totally ashamed. We gotta hide this and we gotta hide us. 
And that's what they try to do. God comes in the garden, read chapter 3. Hey, fellas, what's up? Where you at? He knew where they were at. But the conversation goes on. The sin that God had already seen is, is revealed. Not confessed to, by the way. That started early, too. It's not my fault. And that one choice didn't just mar those first humans. It, it affected us all. We are all, as the Bible describes us, in Adam. Sin has been imputed to us. It's something that we choose to do still. I'm not saying that anybody here is sinless in their choices or actions. But certainly it, it comes from the core of who we are. Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 3 as he's basically um, knocking down any of the people who might think that they're superior to others. The Jews kind of thought they were better than Gentiles. And so he's just basically saying, listen, all of us are in the same mess. Every one of us is racked by sin. He, he says this starting in verse 10 of chapter 3. He says, as it is written, and what he's going to do, he's basically just going to quote the Old Testament to a bunch of these people who are, you know, pretty prideful in the ways that they understood their scriptures. And he's going to say, haven't you read? Don't you understand what our Bible says about us, what, what the Old Testament says about us? He says that none are righteous, quoting here in the, the book of Psalms, and, and he's quoting also in the book of Proverbs and Isaiah through all of these quotations. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. How many? Not even one. It says the the throat of all people is like an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. There's the, the venom of asps or snakes under their lips. Their, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He keeps quoting the Old Testament. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's in Proverbs. And their paths are ruin and misery. And in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is none righteous. No, not one. Yeah, uh, that third page in is a spiritual bummer because it, it's this. We, we were born in perfection. Remember, like very early on as God's creating, he says, let there be light. And the light pierced the darkness and, and everything existed in this inexhaustible light. The light came even before the sun, right? God's light shone, his perfection, his radiance lit up his creation. But when sin came into the world, we were severed from our connection to God, and the light went out. But it wasn't just that. Our ability to shine again was taken from us, at least from our own power. There was nothing that you and I, and still is, nothing that you and I could ever do to turn this sucker back on in our own strength and through our own works. I mean, that's, that's true darkness, right? To be locked in a room with no, wall or no doors or windows and no light switches of any kind, that, that, that's true darkness. To be unable to bring the light, that's true darkness. That's what we were thrust into. The, the book of Ephesians tells us this, that you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. You were in league with the prince of the power there. You were, he was basically saying you were unable, dead, in this liquid, thick darkness, and you were a Satanist. 
before the light of Jesus came into your life. Some of you are like, well, I wasn't that bad. Yeah, you were, just so you know. In fact, you convincing yourself that you weren't that bad is one of Satan's ploys to think that you don't need Jesus, so knock that off and just accept that that's where you're at. You got a problem, human. And your problem, my problem, is sin. But can I give you some good news? Who likes coming to church for the good news? Anybody like the good news? Here comes the good news, you ready? We made a problem. But even as the paint is just starting to dry on the first sins, God in the midst of that calamity makes a promise. We make the problem and God gives a promise. I've preached this to you before, so if you've heard it, just nod like you're hearing it for the first time. But here, as God is doling out the punishments in the wake of the first sin, he comes to the, to the adjutant, the, the, the agent of the first sins. It's his adversary, uh, Lucifer, the devil, Satan. He's come as a snake into the garden. And he starts with him, and he says to the, uh, the snake, he says, listen, I will put enmity. There will be constant friction. There will be war between you and the woman. And then as we read it in our English translations, between your offspring and her offspring. But if we don't keep reading, we don't understand that that reference of the offspring of the woman is not plural, it's singular. He says, your agents, the demons, the other angels who have fallen with you, they're going to war against humanity and continue to try to turn humanity against the God who created them. But your offspring will war against not all of us, certainly that is the case, but against a single descendant of this woman. And he, it goes on to say, shall bruise your, the adversary's head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, other translations, maybe you have one of them, has taken that first bruise, the bruise that will be inflicted by this singular offspring against our adversary. It says crush, and that's very much more apt. Because here's what's going to happen. Fast forward, past the reason for the season, past Christmas, to, to the season that we'll celebrate next, uh, Good Friday and Easter and the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ. On Good Friday, our adversary probably thought, boom! I did it. I killed God. He said in the garden, I just bruise his heel. Looks like I got the whole thing. Because his own creation hung him on a Roman cross. And they watched him bleed until he breathed his last. And then I saw him. They put him in a grave. I killed the Son of God. But keep reading, because that's not how it ends, is it? Turns out, he just nicked them. Because all that really happened is that God, in sending his Son to die for us, paid the price that had to be paid. The just you know, due for our sin is death. There has to be the shedding of blood to cover over the, the, the death that has come from sin. And so Jesus became that, that fitting, that suitable, that only sacrifice for us that we could have that would stand in the place of our deserved death. And he died for us. And died, he did. Not kind of dead, sort of breathing. Dead. It was painful. Horrible. Worst part of it being he took the sins of you and me and every human that's ever existed upon himself 
and their justice was imputed to him. He, he bore it all, right? But on Friday, Satan's feeling pretty good. On Sunday, the truth came out because our Savior came out. Grave couldn't hold him. His heel was nicked, but in his resurrection, his adversary and the power that he had over sin was crushed. And that's what we make the fuss over around here. So that's why Christmas had to happen. The problem. The promise. If you keep reading your Old Testaments, you're going to see that the promise kind of takes shape and form as you keep reading it. In fact, you come to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and, and God meets this guy, Abram, who's living over near uh, modern-day Iraq, and he comes to him and he says, hey, i got a place that I'm going to give to you and your descendants. Follow me. And he says this to him. He says, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and, I'm going to, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then he says this, in you, from your descendants, there will be one among you who all of the families on earth will be blessed by. He's, he's talking about this one that was promised in Genesis chapter 3. You keep going. I'm not going to read the whole Old Testament. Is everybody cool if I don't read the whole Old Testament? But you go on, and if you keep reading, you're going to find, as some scholars have found, uh, this one guy, I want to say his name right, his name is J. Barton Payne. Sounds like a smart guy, doesn't it? Uh, he's, he's deduced, as, as, as he's read the Old Testament, there's over 570 different references, different verses that either directly or indirectly infer the coming of this Messiah, this reason for the season that we celebrate at this time. Uh, some are clearer than others, like uh, this one that I want to spend the rest of my time with, uh, uh, with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me, you can. I'll put them on the screens. But Isaiah chapter 9, uh, the prophet Isaiah, who uh, some 600 years before Jesus hits the earth, starts talking about his arrival. And he says it this way in, Genesis, or in Isaiah chapter 9. He says, uh, <laughs> but there will be no gloom for her, speaking of a country uh, who was in anguish. Uh, in the former time, he brought into contempt... He brought pain and suffering, uh, the lands of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But in the latter time, as Isaiah is prophesying here, uh, he has made the glorious way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Who's ever read like the prophets and been like, like you have no idea what's going on there, right? Anybody ever done that? Just your pastor? Okay. So I, I read this this week because we're going to get to a verse that's very familiar as we talk about Christmas, but these are the verses that preceded it. So I thought, what does that mean? And it's fascinating. It's fascinating because if you can go back to the slide just previously, it says, um, uh, the slide before it says this, the slide before it, ah, there we go. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, for, for, who had, for the contemptuous land. And it says... Uh, the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, some of you have been around the Bible enough to know that these two names are the names of uh, some of the descendants of Israel, of Jacob, and they were given their own regions uh, north uh, in the country of Israel. So here's Israel, right? You got the Sea of Galilee, you got the Jordan River, you got the Dead Sea, over here's the Mediterranean, Egypt's down here. And, and so up here in the northern part of, of Israel, in the time of the tribes of Jacob, are the two tribes of Naphtali and uh, Zebulun. In, in, in the days of Jesus, it just became known as the region of Galilee. And in Matthew chapter 9, it tells us that after John the Baptist is taken into captivity, uh, Matthew chapter 4, I'm sorry, uh, Jesus heads up to the north. He meets Peter and, and, and James and John and Andrew. He meets all these guys who would become his disciples. He spends a huge chunk of his time in this region. And it's not just because. It's all in accordance with this prophecy that Isaiah gives in Isaiah chapter 9. 
Because here in this region, historically, uh, it's been harsh, hard. It's a beautiful place. I've been there. It's just amazing. Lots of, you know, lush grass and, and it's a, you know, it's a kind of a lake valley, river valley, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it was the gateway to Israel. If you were going to come from the, uh, the uh, east and invade Israel, you would skip Jordan going across the river Jordan. You wouldn't want to have to try to ford that. Uh, so you would come up where there wasn't rivers and you would head down through modern day Syria into Israel through this region that we know as Galilee. And on your way, if you don't understand ancient war, you would kill and crush and take captive everything that was there. Now, the, the government uh, was seated in Judah, down in, in southern Israel, and so uh, Jerusalem had its forces and its kings, and, and, and that's where the, the armies would reside. But as, as these nations, Assyria and then Babylon after it, as they would come down, they would just crush everyone in Galilee. It'd be like living in some of those videos that you've seen in your history classes of Vietnam and, and other war-torn regions. Everything that was in their path, they just consumed now, they would go down, some of them would conquer, and we see that a couple different times in the Old Testament, but many of them would be repelled by God's grace in the south, but then they would leave, come in the way that they came, and guess what they would do is they went back through Galilee. They would, again, pillage and destroy all that was in their path, and so the northern region of Israel became known as this dark place. So Isaiah says, you know what, in the past was this contemptuous and anguish-filled land in a later time will be the glorious way of the sea, the land before the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations, the place where I will send, look what he says in the next verse, my light. The people who walked in darkness, those in Galilee, have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This sounds familiar. Who's read the New Testament? What did Jesus say about himself? In John chapter 8, he's hanging out with a bunch of Pharisees, and he says this. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in what? Darkness, but will have the light of life. You keep reading what Isaiah says here. And he goes on to describe the effects of the light, the, the effect the light brings in this dark place, uh, in the darkness that you and I experience in our sin. The light brings, first of all, great joy. Look what it says in verse 3. It says, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. There were two lottery-winning days in ancient Israel, right? It was on the days where the crops were so good you had an abundance. You couldn't wait to go and reap on those days because there was so much for you to, uh, to reap and, and to take into your barns that you were going to be um, uh, you know, able to eat in those lean days that were to come. This was not always the case. We live in a world where there's too much food. But in those days, if your crops went bad, your kids died. So it was a banner day when the harvest time came and there was plenty. It was also a banner day if you went to war and, and one of these nations came down through Syria and, and sought to attack you, but you defeated them. And everything that they had taken as their spoils on the way to fight you, you took from them. And everybody would split up what had been taken in battle. That's how Isaiah describes the joy that the light brings. It's like a banner day, best day ever. He goes on and he says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken on the day of Midian. Again, if you're reading this, you're like, great, I don't know what any of that means. 
But here's what he means. He's saying this light who comes. He says that the yoke of his burden, the staff of, uh, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, uh, all of those things, the yoke, the, the, the burden, the, the, the staff, the rod, all of those things that have been opposed and in, in, in imposed upon those who are in the darkness, um, you've been broken out of, as on the day of Midian. Now, if you're reading about Midian, we've got to look for that in the Old Testament. Now, we just read about Midian in the story of Moses. Who was here for that? Anybody remember that's where Moses went after he left Egypt? That's not the Midian we're talking about. You've got to move forward in the story of Israel. In the book of Judges, there's this guy Gideon, and Gideon fought Midian. Now, if you know the story of Gideon, Gideon, he's not just the guy who put the Bibles in your hotels. Um, He's this judge, and he's this very unlikely leader. He is, uh, as he describes himself to the messenger of God, he says, listen, I'm the the least of my father's sons. I'm from the least of the tribes of Israel, and I have no interest or business leading the people of Israel against this foe. I'm a loser, baby. That's back, I think. Anyway, uh. He just says, I can't do this. And the angel of God says to Gideon, perfect. You're exactly who I'm looking for. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to assemble all the fighting men of Israel. We're going to take them down to this brook. I've been to it. Everybody who bends over and drinks, uh, I'm sorry, everybody who bends over and puts their face in the water, which was the custom of the day. Just get it done. Put your face in the water. But everybody who does that, they're not fighting. Send them home. He narrows the field of army combatants down to 300, and he says to Gideon, perfect, that's our guys. Now go fight the 32,000 of Midian. And Gideon says what you're thinking. Excuse me? What? You want me to go fight that many with this many? And God says, yeah, it's perfect. It's going to be great, because here's what you're going to do. You're going to wait until everybody falls asleep, and then while everybody's asleep... You're going to uh, basically walk out there and you're going to smash some lanterns. You're going to sound some horns and they're going to wake up and they're not going to be able to see because it's so dark and they're going to start, just start flailing and swinging and they're going to end up killing most of themselves by themselves. And then the ones who are left, you'll take care of them. How about that? And so what God was essentially saying, don't miss this. What God was essentially saying is I'm going to send, just like it was in Midian, I'm going to send a light who will do the battle for you Because you can't fight and won't fight for your freedom. He goes on, he says, every boot of the trampling uh, or trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as a fuel for the fire. This is Isaiah prophesying that this victory from the light will be complete. No take backs. And then we get to the part that we all know. He says, for to us, a child is born. Can you imagine reading this from Isaiah or hearing this from the mouth of Isaiah? He says, this one who's going to come, he's going to be this great warrior. He's going to fight. He's going to be a light. He's going to do it all on your behalf. And they're like, who is this guy? Is he like nine feet tall? Is he like Goliath? Is he this great warrior? And he says, no, he's a kid. He's a wee baby. And he's going to come in his, his defenselessness, and he's going to be perfect. He's going to be born in a barn. He's never going to darken the door of a government agency. He's never going to be powerful in the eyes of man. He's always going to be humble. It says in Isaiah 7 that he's going to eat the, the honey and the curd. He's going to be poor his whole life. He's going to be the least likely leader, just like Gideon. 
And he's going to do something that you're not going to expect him to do. You're going to expect him to overthrow the earthly governments. He's going to establish a spiritual one. And he's going to be the light that you so desperately need. <clears throat> For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He's going to rule. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. He's going to be the strategy giver, the plan and way maker. He's, he's going to show you what you need to do in life. Follow him. He's the mighty God. He's, he's undefeatable. There's nothing that overcomes him. This light who comes to shine in your darkness, he will win. He's the everlasting father. He is fatherlike in his care for us, and it is unending. His love for us never fades. And then he's the prince of peace, and we love that one. We sang about it with Darnisha just a little while ago. We love peace. We love it when he gives us that peace that surpasses understanding in those times when we feel like, man, I can't do this. You can. But it's not just that kind of peace. He brokers peace. He takes what's been fractured between us and a holy God, and he says, I reconcile you. I bring you back together. That's the reason behind the reason of this season. He came to take this busted up life. Don't worry, I've done this twice. And this, this is the amazing thing. If I had time to preach this, I'd just wear it out. But we live now in Christ, not a, a cleaned up version of ourselves. What the Bible tells us over and over again is that the old has passed away and the new has come. And so Christ hasn't just kind of dusted off the old us. He's replaced the old us with himself. And so where there was us, unredeemable, uh, unable, um, um, <laughs> just dark, he has taken that from us. And in its place, he's given us himself. When we say that we accept Jesus into our heart, what we're really saying is that we're taking us and we're exchanging it for him. And we stand in the righteousness of the Son of God. And that's why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's not about us and our doings. It's not about us and our abilities. It's us saying, you know what? Not me, God, you. I surrender. I submit. I want you in place of me. Save me. Be my light. And rescue me from this darkness. So, as we close... What is my hope for you as we enter another Christmas season? This is 16 for me with you guys. We've talked about Christmas a lot of different ways. Oh, that's not why I said it. But here's my point. Here's what gets lost so many times. I mean, don't stop at just the reason for the season. <laughs> Certainly, keep Christ at the center of what we're celebrating. Absolutely, he's the reason why it's happening. But go beyond the reason to the, for the season to the reason behind the season. Let the problem impact you. So as you celebrate Christ, remember your sin. If you're a Christian here today, celebrate the fact that Jesus redeemed you, you who were irredeemable. He redeemed you from your sin and gave you life anew when his light came to be a part of your life. As you walk through this season, don't just give gift cards and, and you know, presents to your friends and family. Remember that even as Jesus called himself the light of the world, what did he call us in Matthew 5? You, he says to his followers, you are the light of the world. Hide it under a bush? Oh no! I'm going to let it shine. 
It's an old song. But here's what happens with us Christians. We get satisfied with just showing up on Sundays and hanging out with like people like us and just kind of keeping to ourselves and putting our praises on Facebook for each other to see. And we kind of insulate, turn the wagons inward, right? But don't forget, we're on a mission. And in this season, don't just be snarky with the people who won't say Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Merry Christmas, you mean. That's not the Christian call. Don't, don't stop at defending the phrase. Describe the Savior. Extend the promise. Share the light that you've been given. I'm excited to talk about Christmas this year to you. Always am. I'm excited together to piece the whole thing together. It starts with the problem. The reason behind the season is our sin. Who's grateful that God sent his son so that our sin could be redeemed in us? Let's pray. Will you stand with me? Uh, God, as we uh, live in this age uh, between your comings, you've already come once. We celebrate at this time of uh, of year your arrival on earth. But we, as your followers, anticipate your second coming. And there's so much to be done before you come back. Uh, your, your, your disciple Peter told us that, you know, um, you're not slow in keeping your promises. You're just trying to you know, give opportunities for us to, to share with as many as possible uh, before your return. And so, God, um, help us to live um, in light of your light. Help us to live responding to the grace that you've given us in Christ now, some people might be sitting here this morning or standing, I guess, now, and, and they haven't met you yet. I pray that today is the day that they cross the line and understand their problem and, and experience your promise in your son, Jesus Christ. I'd love to talk to them uh, as we're finishing up here, uh, even as we're singing this last song. If they want to come and talk to me, I'll be in the corner. Uh, but many of us, I know, uh, have already made that decision to trust you. And so here's my prayer for us. I already told my friends that we, we, we get to be the the purveyors of your good news. Help us to live as your lights in a world that's in the dark and share with them the good news as you give us opportunity. And then uh, thanks for sending Jesus to be our Emmanuel. Um, In our situations, God, where we struggle and we need your help, thanks for being the Prince of Peace and uh, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. Thanks for uh, being with us in, in all that we face come, Emmanuel. Sing that with us this morning.